from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would you please be seated and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would work through your word in our hearts. And we pray, O Father, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have a new heart of faith to receive and rest upon your word, to perceive the ways that you are working in us to glorify yourself and to make us more like your Son. We ask, Lord God, that you would do that here among your people. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I grew up in a community that had been for hundreds of years a rural farming community. I grew up in a, a community where my dad and my dad's dad and his dad's dad, and for generations they were farmers, carpenters, and masons. But just a few years before I was born, the community that I lived in, it began to change. The wealthy sort of white-collar suburbs of Philadelphia on what's known as the Main Line began to expand westward until they came head-to-head with our farming community. And so what began to happen in our community was this mixture of different people groups, different backgrounds, different perspectives on the world. As a high schooler, I got to experience a kind of microcosm of that in my high school. I had the largest student organization in my school was the Future Farmers of America, the FFA. Everybody traditionally was part of the FFA. There were more students in my high school who went on to Votech than would go on to college. That was traditionally the community that I lived in. But it began to change, especially during my high school year. It made for an interesting dynamic for high schoolers who were looking for their identity, 
trying to identify with a particular community, trying to figure out who will be my people. So it, it made for this sort of interesting experiment. I got each year that I was in school, I got to try to identify with a new community. And it was very interesting. I remember one particular year, I thought that I wanted to be part of the skater crowd, right? You know that there's a crowd, at least you know if you've been to high school in the last 20 years, there's a skater crowd. They, they like to skateboard. I think I was drawn to them because they sort of had this attitude of like, we do what we want when we want. People respected them or feared them. I couldn't tell which one it was. Uh, but uh, I had my parents buy me the baggy clothes, and I thought, I'm going to be in the skater crowd. This is terrific. And at Christmas, I asked for a skateboard. And I got a skateboard, and I learned after about a month of trying to skateboard that I was not a skater, okay? No matter how many times I tried, I was not going to be able to stay on the skateboard. And I tried hard. I wanted to be part of that community. I really did. There were various times in my high school experience when I, was, I thought I was part of the, the crowd of athletes. That was going to be my community. And so I wore the Nike swish pants, and I talked about sports, and I made sure every semester, every season of the year, I was doing sports. I realized very quickly it was not the community for me when I figured out that you have to go in the weight room every day and lift weights, and I just had no uh, interest in lifting weights. That sounded worse than skateboarding, okay? I know that fill in the blank with the communities you've experienced. I know you've gone through something of the same thing, whether it was in high school or it was after high school, it was in college, seeing the communities around you and trying to identify with a community by beginning to talk like them and dress like them and walk like them and act like them and hang out with them, okay? You've all experienced it. If you're a young child, get ready for it. You're going to experience it. It's coming. You've all experienced it, and I, I tell you the truth, that's the thing that Jesus is speaking about this morning in Luke chapter 14. How do I know that? I'll tell you, it's very simple. Jesus uses the word disciple three times. In verse 26, in verse 27, in verse 33, Jesus says, if you do not do this, you cannot be my disciple. And the word disciple had a very specific meaning for Jesus, okay? It's not a throwaway word. It meant something very specific. It was a person who was a follower of the master, and by follower, we mean they mimicked their lifestyle after the master. They walked like him. They talked like him. They dressed like him. They went where he went. They acted like him. The master eats his bread like this. We're going to eat our bread like that. He drinks his wine like this. We're going to drink our wine like this, okay? That's what was involved with discipleship. The very thing we think of when we think of trying to fit into the communities around us, dressing, walking, talking like them. This morning, Jesus speaks about the nature of His discipleship. If you're going to be like Him, this is what it looks like, Okay? Now, that, it, it comes with a few warnings, and here's the first warning, all right? If you grow up in a tradition that tends to look at the Bible in a legalistic way, you tend to read all the passages the same. Jesus says to do something, and that must mean to be saved or be accepted by Him. I have to do something, okay? And so I pick up this passage, and I think, okay, Jesus tells me to be saved. I must take up my cross. There's the work that I must do that Christ might save me. But that's not the message of the gospel, right? We've talked about that. The gospel is free. It is by grace and grace alone. 
So if you have not been saved, if you're a skeptic, if you're a seeker, if you're wondering who is this Jesus, all right, this passage really isn't addressing to you how you might be saved. If that's you, I got a simple message for you this morning. Go back to go, all right? Don't, don't stop at the boardwalk. Don't collect $200. Go back to go. Go back to the very beginning, and it happens in Luke 13 when Jesus is speaking about the narrow door, okay? That's where Christ addresses the question, how am I saved? The message this morning of discipleship is one for those who have been saved by grace through faith and who are now asking the question, how might I be like my master? And it's very simple how this works. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that we are saved by grace, by the power of the Spirit who works faith into our hearts, but when faith is worked into our hearts, there's other things that are being worked into our hearts, okay? So faith and repentance, they come with a whole new heart of affections, desires, and hates. And one of the great affections of the new heart is an affection or a desire to be like Jesus, okay? So we often pray, Lord God, make us into the image of Your Son. That's simply another word for discipleship, okay? We are saying now that we've been saved, Spirit of God, work in our hearts that we might desire to be like Jesus. And that's what he's talking about in this passage this morning. This is a message about discipleship. Now, let me tell you as a warning or a caveat, this is one of those passages when we get done this morning, if I was to say to you, all right, all of you who feel like you're doing this well, stand up. No one's going to stand up. Okay? It is one of those passages that will move us to repentance, and that's a good thing, all right? It's a convicting, convicting message that Jesus delivers, all right? Let's look at the three things that Jesus says to His audience. Well, let me first say this. The phrase that He repeats again and again is that you cannot be my disciple, okay? The phrase literally says, the Greek says, you do not have the power to be my disciple. The Greek word dunamis. And if you've ever heard any two-bit sermon with any Greek in it, you've probably heard the Greek word dunamis because everyone tells you it's like dynamite. Okay? That's where we get our English dynamite. It's power. Jesus says, if you do not do this, you do not have the power to be my disciple. And you can hear him speaking about the power of the Spirit. Okay? If, if these things aren't being worked out in your heart, you ought to ask the question, where's the power of the Spirit? Is the Spirit powerfully working in me? It's a good question to ask. The first, first thing that Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he does not have the power to be my disciple. Does not have the power to be my disciple. This is a passage where we read and we begin to read the gravity of these words from Jesus, and man, they're electrifying, aren't they? There's a shock value to the things that Jesus says. We're meant to hear His words in verse 26. It's like sticking your finger into an electric socket. You get a little jolt of electricity, and you say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I imagine the crowds that had gathered in verse 25, it says that there were massive crowds around Jesus. The crowds that had gathered, they began to hear his words in verse 26, and you could imagine them kind of like tiptoeing backwards. 
I didn't realize this was one of those kind of meetings. I thought this was like a, an interest group who's interested, you know, kind of loosely interested in Jesus. I didn't realize we had to sign in blood this morning, okay? So they're kind of backing away. It has a, a natural thinning effect on the crowd. Jesus says, he who does not hate his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, his children, does not have the power to be my disciple. Now, we know loosely what this means, right? Okay? It's not Jesus saying to you, listen, you've got to go and make sure that you despise with vengeance your family. Okay, go and divorce your spouse, disown your children, act like they are worthless to you, never see them again. It's not what Jesus is saying because we know many places elsewhere he says the exact opposite. He's not calling for hatred as you and I understand hatred, all right? One commentator mentioned this, uh, how the, uh, both people who are from the Far East and people who are from the Middle East, they have a very different conception of love and hate. It is a comparative word, and you may love something, and if you like something less, you may say that you hate it, because one thing you love more than the other. That's the way the word hatred often functions in those cultures. So the message that Christ begin with, though it's shocking, is very simple. It is a call from Jesus if you are to be my disciple, you will love me more than you love your loved ones, more than you love those who you have deep affection for, parents, brother, sister, children, okay? It is a very hard call from the master what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, and yet He exhorts us to this, loving Him above everyone else. Now, I'm going to let that sit there for a second. I don't want to say anything more about it. I think the words of Jesus are convicting enough. We're going to come back to it. Just rest on it for a second, okay? Just, just rest on it. Second thing Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be, does not have the power to be my disciple. Now, you, you, you could play a little interesting game this morning. You could try and pick the three phrases that Jesus utters and try and guess which was the most shocking. I don't know. Each of these is like a punch to the gut, okay? Jesus says here, he who does not take up his cross, does not bear his own cross and follow me, does not have the power to be my disciple. There's so much about that that was shocking, was scandalous, right? First, Jesus, we are like months, maybe six months removed or before the events of the Passion of Christ, okay? We have the crucifixion, and before the crucifixion, we have the beating of Christ, and before the beating of Christ, we have the arrest of Jesus, and before the arrest, we have the betrayal, and before the betrayal, the, the supper with His disciples, and before that, the entrance into Jerusalem, and before that, they're approaching Jerusalem. We are on this side of all of that. No one has been, been even speaking about that except for Jesus Himself, and every time He does, His disciples say, what are you talking about? Jesus, you make no sense to us, okay? 
All of that has yet to happen, and Jesus says to his disciples, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you don't have the power to be my disciple. And I think that the people who are listening are probably saying, what are you talking about? Okay, crucifixion. Crucifixion is a notorious image of the day. Crucifixion wasn't a very popular uh, way of putting people to death throughout the history of Israel, but during this time period, it had become very popular. It's something I learned this week. From 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., roughly 200 years, crucifixion was notorious in Rome for the worst of criminals. I'll give you an example. In the year 4 B.C., okay, so 4 B.C., four years uh, before Christ, loosely, 4 B.C., the people who lived in 4 B.C. are probably standing around Jesus at this moment listening to Him. In 4 B.C., there's a rebellion in Jerusalem. And the Roman centurions, they take 2,000 Jews and they crucified them all at the same time, okay? Could you imagine? 2,000 people crucified at the same time. The image that Jesus presents to his hearers is a well-known image. And those who would be crucified would be tasked with a very torturous job, a psychologically torturous job of taking their crossbeam from their jail cells to the place they'd be crucified, literally carrying upon their backs the instruments of their death. Okay? Could you imagine what was going through their minds as they're doing that? Jesus says to his disciples, unless you do that, lest you take up the instrument of your death, lest you bear the crossbeam of your cross and follow me, you don't have the power to be my disciple. Okay? We know what Jesus is speaking about elsewhere. He speaks about taking up his cross, and he connects it with the denying of self. Unless the old man is crucified, unless you are put to death, and the new man is raised in new life, you don't have the power to be my disciple. I'm just going to let it sit there for a second. We're going to come back to you, okay? Think about it. Third thing Jesus says here in verse 33 Third time he repeats the phrase. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has does not have the power to be my disciple, okay? Does not have the power to be my disciple. Now, we're in a a very odd place, okay, in a very odd conversation when this is like the least of our worries, right? When we hear this last phrase of Jesus and we say, phew, Not as bad as the first two things he said, right? It's just all my possessions. Very odd place, but again, Jesus continues to exhort his hearers with this scandalous, extreme nature of discipleship. He says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, okay? Now listen, the the phrase that Jesus uses, the word that he uses that's translated as renounce is the Greek word apotasso. It's a compound word, apotasso, okay? It means to arrange away, arrange away, all right? And, and literally, the way it's been taken in the, the Greek language of this day is a word synonymous with to say goodbye. That's what it means, to arrange away, to say goodbye. Adios, see you later, sayonara, okay? 
What Jesus is saying to his followers is very simple. Listen, when you get on the Jesus boat, when you are saved by grace through faith, by the work of the Spirit, and you become a disciple of Christ, you know what that means? You are on this boat, you're in Christ, and your belongings, your possessions, they're on the shore. And you are saying, see you later. To your things. <laughs> to your possessions. Right? This is what Christ exhorts His followers to. Now, you see how these things are related, right? Family, your own life, your possessions. Unless these things are somehow taken away from your iron grip on the things you most hold dear, you don't have the power to be my disciple. Now, let me talk about then what this means for us, okay? This sort of thing is often easy for us to see in Christians who are suffering around the world for the sake of the gospel, right? And we are amazed at the way that God is working in some places. Afghanistan, for us, provides the perfect example, a contemporary example where Christians in that country have literally said, I will disown my family I will lose my life, and I will submit my possessions to be a disciple of Christ. And we're amazed by that, right? And the Apostle Paul exhorts his followers to pray for those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for fairly affluent American Christians who are part of generations of Christian tradition in a, a loosely Christian culture, what does it mean for us? Let me tell you a few things, okay? First of all, it doesn't mean what our first inclination usually is. It doesn't mean that we need to change all of our circumstances because we often read a passage like this and we think, okay, I got to alter the things that are going on out here. That's easy. It's easy to do, but it's not what Christ is speaking about, okay? So he doesn't say to his followers, make your family hate you. That's not what he says. He says, love me more than you love them, okay? He doesn't say to his followers, make it so that people want to kill you. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't even say that you must be loosed of all your possessions, that you have to have all your possessions taken from you. He says, say goodbye, okay? Two different things are happening in the passage. Let me tell you why I say that. We often get the idea that we can alter the outward circumstances and it will produce what Christ is speaking about here. And so what do we do? We sell our house and we live in a van. Then we'll be doing what Christ says here, right? Or we move from our country to a foreign place. And we say, then I'll be doing what Christ says here. Uh, we get rid of all of our possessions and we become homeless. Then I will be doing what Christ says here. The problem with that, you may alter the facade all you want, but Christ is speaking to the heart. This is a disposition of the heart of a believer where the Spirit of God is at work that the believer will say, I want or I desire to be like my rabbi, my master, my savior. The Spirit must work in the heart 
to conform you to his image so that you can say with your life and with your family and with your belongings, not my will, but yours be done. There's an interesting quote from C.S. Lewis that explains this very thing. C.S. Lewis says, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to take the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or to crown it or to stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked. I want the whole outfit. That's C.S. Lewis's explanation of this passage. You know what I think the summary of this text is? I think it comes from Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. You probably remember this. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain That's what it is. It's counting them as rubbish in order that I may gain the surpassing riches that are in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the exhortation from the passage this morning. He who will be like Christ will hold the glory of the Father and the value of saving grace as paramount in their life They will hold it above all else, and then they will take their family, their life, and their possessions, and they will hold it out with an open hand, saying to God the Father, do with these things as you wish. Not my will, but yours be done. See, it's an open-handed holding elevated to the Father that defines the very nature of this passage. The question is, do you hold your life with an open hand? Do you hold your family Your children, your beloved children, do you hold them with an open hand? Do you hold your own life, your comfort, your satisfaction, your desires, do you hold them with an open hand and you say, God, do with them what you will? Your possessions, your beloved homes, your pet projects, your bank accounts, your retirement, whatever it is, do you hold them with an open hand? Do you say, Lord, do with them what you will? Not mine, but yours be done. See, there's many questions that we could ask that would expose the nature of our hearts on this matter. You could ask the question, what do I do when I don't get my own way? What do I do or think when those things are threatened? When they're called into question, my family, my possessions, my own life, what do I do? You see, I think the saga of the last 18 months has exposed this in the heart of the American church, hasn't it? The saga of the last 18 months. You see, 
as American Christians, here's how we have been living our lives. You take the example from the passage, and it's very simple. Jesus speaks about a man who builds a tower and a king who goes to fight a battle. And the life of the American Christian has largely been this. Oh, we can build this tower because it's not going to cost much. Not going to be much work in building this tower, so I'm willing to commit to that. It's an easy commitment. Or the king who goes to battle, right? All right we're going to go fight this battle because it's an easy one. Our, our army outweighs theirs like a thousand times. This battle's a piece of cake. And so we have found it to be a very easy discipleship. We haven't heard the words of Christ calling us to, to lay these things down to forfeit them for the sake of the gospel. And again, here's then where the last 18 months has exposed. The last 18 months has exposed fear and panic, and it looks something like this. Family, life, possessions. Don't you threaten those things, because when you do, you better watch out. And it creates in our hearts a sense of fear and panic, and we have our ironclad grip on those things, and we will not let them go. And when the facade of our ability to control those things is taken away, we begin to have mass hysteria. We begin to have fear in our hearts, and we don't know what to do. That's been the exposing of our hearts against the words of Christ to a very costly discipleship. Brothers and sisters, I want to simply encourage you this morning, these exhortations from Christ to follow Him where He has gone, they are indeed scandalous. They are dangerous. They are risky. They have an eternal value which far outweighs the cost now, but they do come with a cost. They do come with a cost. So let me simply then leave you with this. Christ says, if you do not do these things, you don't have the power to be my disciple. Let me tell you, if you are in Christ, you have the power. The power, the dunamis. Dunamis altu mathetes, the power to be his disciple. And the power is the Spirit of God who dwells in you, who convicts your heart, who moves you to a place where you say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow him where he has gone. And my encouragement to you is very simple. The Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit of God will work to convict your heart, to move you to this place where you can confess these very things. And if you would simply join me, as I've been preparing for this sermon, it's been convicting for me. It ought to move us all to repentance, okay? There's no one in this room who, again, can say, well, I do all of that well. That's me. It, it ought to move us to repentance, and then we ought to pray a very simple prayer. Lord God, my family, my possessions, my life, they are yours. Deal with them however, whenever, wherever, and in whatever way you would like for your glory. Lord God, help me to love my family, my things, and my possessions well, but help me to love you more. It's that simple. As we pray that, the power that is in us 
The Spirit of God will work to change our hearts. And we will be made more and more like our Savior, Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, you have challenged us this morning in ways that we often are not challenged. And Lord God, we know that there is an inclination of our hearts to get out of this room and forget these words. To go from here and act as if there is no cost to be your disciple. Lord God, by your Spirit, would you move in our hearts that we would see everything we have is not our own. It is a gift from you. And may we hold these things, our nearest and dearest treasures, may we hold them with open hands. May you move, Lord God, in our hearts that we would hold our children with open hands, that we would hold our things with open hands, that we would hold our own dear lives with open hands. And may your spirit work to make us more and more, day by day, like our Savior, that we would be his disciple, that we would look like him, speak like him, act like him, walk like him. We ask, Father, that you would do this work. We cannot do it of our own accord, but we desire that you would sanctify us to make us a people after your own heart. And we know that the surpassing riches of union with Christ far outweigh the cost that we might pay here. May we set our eyes on eternity. May we see you in your splendor and glory, and may we trust you. Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior.